Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly leadership podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week. And I get the great opportunity, the privilege, the honor of each week interviewing some of the world's most influential thought leaders, whether they are business titans, CEOs, best-selling authors, celebrities, athletes, four-star, five-star generals, people that have survived a tragedy or discovered something of particular relevance and aren't household names, but have come on this weekly podcast, audio and video, to help us all become better leaders. Perhaps it's a better leader in our organization. Perhaps it's a better leader for our team or our platform or our group or our division. Maybe it's a better leader in our home with our family, our spouses, our partners, our children, or in our neighborhood. You get the point. All of us have different leadership roles in our life. And this podcast highlights a broad variety of experts. And I'm privileged as the host to also have written a book series about what is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. The series is called Master Mentors. Volume 1 and Volume 2 are out by HarperCollins on my way to 10 volumes in 10 years, where each year I pick my favorite 30 interviews that I think the guest, A, will give me permission to highlight them in my series, but also that has a transformational insight to share. The books are easy, breezy, fast. They're called Master Mentors. They're available in print, audio, digital, and now video books from Lit Video Books. Love to have you pick up a copy. Volume 3 coming out in the fall of 2023. Today's guest is Amy Morin. She is the author of numerous books that have collectively sold over a million copies. She is a psychotherapist and licensed clinical social worker. She's also an academic, and she's an author, writer, podcaster, blogger. Her book we're going to talk about today is her most recent release called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. Take back your power, embrace change, face your fears, and train your brain for happiness and success. Amy, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. Hey, great to have you here. I get the sense that there's a nautical theme going on with you today. Tell me your background looks suspiciously like a boat. How did that come about? You are correct. So I was a therapist in rural Maine nine years ago when I wrote an article called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. The article went viral. 50 million people read it, led to an opportunity to write a book. And my husband and I decided if we can move anywhere in the world, because now I was mobile, I can write a book from anywhere. We don't have to do it in the cold climate of Maine anymore. So we decided to move to a sailboat in the Florida Keys seven years ago. And I've been writing more books and doing some cool things. I get to podcast from the boat ever since. Not my dream, but hey, different folks, different uh, strokes. So no, honestly, delighted you're here. How cool it is that you and your husband have built a lifestyle that allows you the flexibility and the independence to live where and on what you want. Never thought I would say that before, but congrats to you. Amy, you are married. However, this is not your first marriage. There's something that happened quite tragically early in your life that became part of the motivation for writing these books. Would you, in a characteristic role for you, vulnerable and courageous and authentic, would you maybe reorient our listeners and viewers that may not know your story and how that moment in your life became the impetus for your passion and what you're doing now? Yeah. So I was a therapist in rural Maine thinking I'm going to teach everybody all this stuff that I learned in college about mental health and mental strength. But 
shortly after I started working as a therapist, my mom passed away suddenly and unexpectedly. She had a brain aneurysm. And that really catapulted me into this new world where I thought it's not just about teaching people, but like now I have to figure out how do you get through grief? How do you work on yourself when your heart is broken? How do you get through painful times? And just really set me on this passionate journey to learn as much as I could for my own purposes about what really works and are these strategies that I'm teaching people effective when life is good as well as when you feel like you're on the bottom of the barrel. And three years to the day that my mom passed away, my 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. So I found myself a widow. I don't have my mom, and I'm supposed to be a therapist who helps other people deal with their problems. But my heart was broken. And even as a therapist, and even though I'm an author, like I don't even have the words to explain what that period in my life was like, other than just to say it was really dark and painful for a long, long time. And it took years to figure out what am I going to do next? How do I rebuild my life? And I took months off from work, but eventually obviously had to go back and, and figure out what am I going to do? And one of the things I decided to do was to start writing articles because I wanted to be able to afford my house. Now that I was down to one income, I needed uh, another way to make a little bit of money. So I started writing as a side hustle, basically to keep the lights on. Took a few years uh, to really feel like I was getting back on my feet and I got a new job, a new house, and I was fortunate enough to find love again. And I thought like, oh, this is my fresh start in life. But shortly after I got married, my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And it was in that moment that I was just like, this isn't fair. I spent all of my 20s grieving and I didn't even know if I could handle one more loss, but obviously I didn't have a choice. So I wrote myself a letter of what mentally strong people don't do. When I was done, I had a list of 13 things and I found that letter to be really helpful. And it was the things that I'd learned in my therapy office and through my own experiences. And I thought, well, if this helps me, maybe it would help somebody else. And I published it online because I had been writing for a while, but I thought maybe this will help somebody thinking a few people would read it, but 50 million people read that article. And then it led to the opportunity to do what I do now, which is to continue speaking about mental strength 10 years later. Well, you're also a marketing genius because it's a pithy title. You expect it to read the 13 things mentally strong people do. Why maybe subtly did you choose to think of the counter type to that? Yeah, when I wrote the letter to myself, my heart was broken again. And the last thing I wanted was a long to-do list. And I had learned as a therapist, too, that sometimes it's not really about what you do. Like, it only takes one counterproductive bad habit to keep you stuck in life. And so they had taught me, as a clinical social worker, build on people's strengths. When they come into your office, point out what they're doing well and tell them to build on that. But, like, really early on, I realized I'd be doing people a disservice if I didn't remind them, hey, that one little thing that you're doing kind of outweighs the good habits that you have as well. And the only way I could really make sense of it was I thought if I went to see a physical trainer and they told me to run on a treadmill, that'd be great. I'd do it. But I'd be really angry if they didn't tell me that the jelly donut I was eating for breakfast was a counterproductive bad habit. I'd rather give up the jelly donut than spend another hour on the treadmill. So that's what I wanted to do with my therapy clients and with my own life As I said, you know, if you just don't have certain bad habits, like you can get through the day. And in that moment that I wrote that letter to myself, it was a reminder of like, okay, Amy, no matter what you do today, just don't do these things and you'll, you'll be okay and you'll get through it. And so when I wrote the letter, it wasn't intended to be a book. I certainly never imagined I'd become an author, but it was really because I found it helpful. And I'm glad so many other people found it helpful too to say, all right, here's a don't do list. 
Jim Collins, the authors of Good to Great and Built to Last and How the Mighty Fall, he's famous for having your to-do list and your not-to-do list. You're perhaps stop doing things. To that point, I'm going to painfully walk our listeners and viewers quickly through the 13 things and maybe have you drill down on three or four that I'd think our listeners and viewers might benefit from. The 13 things mentally strong people don't do. To our listeners and viewers, maybe take a moment and check in for about a minute as I read these 13 things. Number one, they don't waste time feeling sorry for themselves. Number two, they don't give away their power. Three, they don't shy away from change. Four, they don't focus on things they can't control. By the way, Dr. Covey would have loved you. Number five, they don't worry about pleasing everyone. They don't fear taking calculated risks. Number seven, they don't dwell on the past. Number eight, they don't make the same mistake over and over. Number nine, they don't resent other people's success. Number 10, they don't give up after the first failure. Number 11, they don't fear alone time. 12, they don't feel the world owes them anything. And 13, they don't expect immediate results. I mean, this seems like things we should learn in kindergarten. None of these, no offense, are earth-shattering things. They might be a little bit episodic, but you geniusly pulled them together, kind of sequenced them, and wrote about each of these in this book. How did you curate this list? Again, it was the things that I had learned in in my therapy office, when I would see people who went through really painful times and still had hope for the future and they were still working on themselves, it was often because they didn't do those certain things. They wouldn't say, worry about things they couldn't control. Instead, they would say, all right, maybe the only thing I can control today is how I spend my time or who I spend it with, or maybe it's what I eat for lunch, but I'm gonna focus on that one thing rather than worry about everything in the world right now. And I really pinpointed those things. These people, or they didn't feel sorry for themselves. They might have gone through something horrific that wasn't fair. It was to no fault of their own, yet they didn't sit around and say, this is awful and now I can't live a great life. Instead, they were like, okay, here's a hand I was dealt. I'm going to make the best of it. So it was really, a lot of it was about what I learned from just observing people in my therapy office. I want to drive deep on a couple of these. Number three, they don't shy away from change. Franklin Covey has just released a book called Change. And we have a fairly uh, elementary, intentionally elementary methodology on how organizations change, how people change. It really is a solution aimed at leaders that are trying to pull their teams through change. What we realized in the process was that, you know, most change management methodologies are quite complicated, right? And they don't really take in the human factor that change is an emotional process for people. And the more you can resonate and identify with that not everyone is going to accelerate to the change as fast as the leader or the CEO is going to, when you realize you kind of have to meet people where they are, the train is metaphorically leaving the station and you might be in first class or second class or holding on the caboose with your life, the train is moving. Why is number three that you don't shy away from change? This is one that I think we see in other people and it's hard to recognize in ourselves mm. sometimes. Like as a therapist, I'd sit through a supervision meeting where a group of therapists would be talking about some of their clients who were afraid to do something different and the struggles they had with motivating and talking people about 
to how to change their lives. And then the software department would say, hey, by the way, we're going to get a new software program. And suddenly these same, same therapists would be like digging in their heels saying, oh, no, that's not going to work. I don't want to try something new. And we could really then take a step back and say, yeah, how hard is it? If we're struggling with changing a software program that we use on a daily basis, how difficult is it for people to change their habits or to make these entire changes in their lives that might affect everything from the people they hang around with to how they spend their time? And yet we often expect other people to make change or to come along with us for the ride when we say, hey, we're doing things differently. And we forget. And as you just pointed out, that emotional process that some changes are easier for us than it are, is for other people. Sometimes we forget that there's fear involved or that people are scared about how they're going to look or if they don't understand something or whether it's going to work as well. There's a lot of fear involved in change. And it's easy to gloss over that when we aren't experiencing that same fear ourselves. I think it was Professor Adam Grant from Wharton who wrote the book Think Again that says usually the advice we're giving other people is the advice we should be giving ourselves. And someone wise once, I think, said, you know, we generally love change when it's our idea. It's when it's somebody else's <laughs> idea that we're more resistant to it. Let's talk about um, taking delight in the success of those others. You actually call it number nine. They don't resent other people's success. I want you to kind of take that one a little bit deeper because, you know, says easy does hard, right? I mean, all of us know that we should take delight in the success of those others around us. But the fact of the matter is, as humans, we're, you know, generally pretty jealous and envious people. And it takes a really mature person to want what you have and have what you want. And what would you say as a psychologist or as a clinical um, expert around, how do people first that admit they may have some jealousy? Because very few people do. When right. someone, when, you're just jealous. No, I'm not. I mean, no one ever admits to being jealous, right? It's your, your immediate retort is, no, I'm not. No, of course you are. You're human. So of course you're jealous. Take that wherever you want to go. I'm glad that you pointed that out, that we all feel it, but nobody admits it. Because so often I'll hear people say like, oh yeah, I don't care that that happened. But like, of course you do. When you see your competitor crushing it or when you see somebody that maybe isn't the nicest person and they're talking about this amazing thing that happened to, to them, there's often that twinge of jealousy or why can't I have that? And sometimes it's even our friends or our family. When they're doing really well, it'll cause us to think, well, how come I'm not experiencing that? And that's normal and normalizing it and just putting a name to it and admitting it to yourself is huge to say, all right, I'm a little jealous about this or I'm a little envious. And that's okay to admit that. It doesn't make you a bad person, but admitting it can go a long way to then taking some of the sting out of it, actually. There's research behind that, that labeling an emotion, putting a name to it, takes some of the sting out of it, reduces the intensity and the duration of it. So that could be step one, is just admitting it to yourself. And then recognizing the fact that it can be unhealthy. There's tons of research out there that like envying somebody on social media is directly linked to mental health issues like depression. And we compare ourselves because we think, well, that person's either better than I am or not as good as I am. And those comparisons are super harmful, but really tough to avoid in the age of social media where everybody's business is all online. But we know that when we just look at other people as an opinion holder rather than our competitor, it changes everything. So instead of thinking that person's better than I am, if you just realized maybe that person has knowledge or skills or something that I could learn from rather than that they are better than I am, 
that's actually way better for our mental health. There's tons of research behind that too, that our psychological well-being improves when we just realize that, yeah, other people have skills, experiences in life, things that I can learn from. And when we look at them as somebody that could be our mentor, as opposed to our competitor, we tend to do a lot better. I don't think the 30-year-old Scott Miller ever would have led a conversation with, well, I'm jealous of them. But the 55-year-old Scott Miller says it multiple times a day. People that I dislike, people that are kicking my butt in some arena, I readily admit it because it's just true. And I think jealousy is different than envy. I don't wish they didn't have it. I just wished I did. And then what I do usually do is then go figure out, how can I go do that? How can I accomplish it? Because my skills, my passions, my fears, my upbringing, my paycheck, all that is different than theirs. Some better and some worse and some equal. And so your book has been a great gift to me to kind of channel what might be even a healthy jealousy into motivation and focus and, and acceleration towards how can I accomplish what I want to do and still be delighted for what they're getting, whether they deserve it or not. Right. And I'm glad that you pointed out that difference between jealousy and envy, because it is sometimes about like, oh, I wish I could have that versus the idea of not only do I wish I could have it, but I wish that person wouldn't. When you start investing a lot of time, hoping something bad happens to your competitor, that's when we really cross into the unhealthy department. Because rather than focusing on, okay, what can I do to make myself better? Or all of our energy goes into wishing harm upon somebody else, which we know is really bad for ourselves, the other person, and the entire situation. Well, newsflash, I'm both jealous and envious, but I don't think it makes me a sociopath. So different counseling session. Right. I'll ring the <laughs> nautical doctor. That'd be a good website, thenauticaldoctor.com. Think about that. You're right. Uh, I think it would. <laughs> are people naturally mentally stronger than others? Is mental strength a discipline? Is it kind of nurture or nature? Is it how your parents raised you? Is it the amount of trauma you've had in your life? I mean, I've lived a really remarkably trauma-free life. Just now, in my 50s, late 55, my father passed from the last six months. I've been very fortunate to have had a fairly trauma, completely trauma-free life as of yet. I'm a father. My biggest nightmare is, you know, protecting my wife and my sons. And I actually think I'm a pretty mentally tough person. How does someone build that? Another good question, because I think sometimes people think that you have to like get out there and toughen yourself up and they are exposing themselves to difficult situations on purpose just with the sole idea of if I put myself out there, then somehow uh, the world will teach me these lessons I need to know. Yeah, difficult circumstances can help people grow stronger, painful experiences, but it's not to be traumatic. People will often say like, what kill doesn't kill you makes you stronger, but as a therapist, I know traumatic experiences often leave people scarred and it's much more difficult for them to build mental strength in the long run. And all of those things you mentioned can be a factor. It's similar to physical strength. Some people are born with a genetic predisposition that makes it easier for them to become physically strong. And maybe they have life experiences that make it way easier for them to build even more physical strength because they're blessed with the ability to play sports and they have opportunities to go to the gym, those sorts of things. Mental strength is similar. The way you grew up as a child, the uh, genetics that you were born with, the life experiences you've had as an adult, all of those things are a factor. But for everybody to know, we can all build mental strength. It's about the choices that you make every single day and that it's different than mental health. So you might still have a mental health issue like depression or anxiety, 
But that doesn't mean that you can't be mentally strong. It's a complicating factor. Just like if you had high blood pressure, it might affect your ability to build physical strength, but you can still do it. You might just have to do it a little differently. So same thing. If you're struggling with a mental health issue like depression or anxiety, bipolar, something like that, you might have to build mental strength a little bit differently or take some precautions, but there are still things you can do every single day to grow mentally stronger. I want to drill down on one more and then talk a bit about your point of view on parenting. You've written a book with a similar theme for mentally strong parents. One of the things you say mentally strong people don't do is they don't fear time alone. And I'd like to know why that made it into it. I'm guessing because as uh, a widow, you had some time alone. You had to work through that. Perhaps you were an extrovert or a very social person. But I do think it's a great skill. Some of the most deliberate, thoughtful people are those that are very contemplative. They schedule time by themselves. They think they're comfortable with their own thoughts. Talk about why mentally strong people don't fear time alone. You know, we're social creatures, so it's important to have plenty of social time. But on the other hand, the voice you're going to hear the most in your life is the one inside your own head. And to figure out how do you be comfortable with that voice in your own head, it takes practice. And as a therapist, I would encounter a lot of people who would say, like, I always have the music on in the background. I never shut the TV off. I'm always listening to a podcast. And they never really had time alone with their thoughts. And because of that, they just weren't comfortable. They didn't know what to do. How do you deal with a catastrophic thought when you can't drown out the noise? How do you deal with uncomfortable thoughts? How do you reframe the negativity in your head? So we really had to start at ground zero with figuring out how do you tolerate these thoughts that aren't helpful? Or how do you sit with an uncomfortable emotion without constantly distracting yourself? And for a lot of people, that's difficult to do because we don't ever sit down and think like about our goals for our life. Like we spend a lot of time maybe planning a vacation or planning a wedding, but like, do you really plan your life? Do you get proactive about how you're spending your time, who you're spending it with? And for me, certainly after I was widowed, I had way more quiet time than I ever wanted. But I also had the opportunity to then figure out like, how do I draft a new uh, chapter in my life? Like literally, what do I want my life to look like after this? And it was really about that. And despite, you know, it was great. I had supportive people around me and plenty of friends and family, but knowing that in the end it was me and what was I going to do? What kind of conversations was I going to have with myself? And when we practice that, we learn to rely on ourselves so that we can give ourselves a pep talk when you need it. You can talk yourself down when you're really anxious and you can realize that you don't have to believe everything you think. Your brain will lie to you. It will tell you you can't do something or you've embarrassed yourself or nobody likes you. You don't have to believe all those thoughts either, but when you get more comfortable with being alone, you can recognize that some of those thoughts aren't true, they're not helpful, and you can reframe them and talk back to them in a healthier way. Amy, can you hire for these practices? I mean, speak to the people leaders inside organizations. Would you recommend that these are good interview lenses? Can you spot these traits in people to determine if they might be exhibiting them inside the organization after you hire them? Because we know everyone's on their best behavior during an interview, including me. And then you hire them, you're like, wait, where is that person I interviewed? Oh, they, they were on their best behavior for four 45-minute calls. To what extent do you think these can be good screening characteristics for future employees? I think they can be incredibly important questions to ask. And of course, we know rather than just asking somebody 
whether they are open to change, get those examples of times yes. when they've struggled with change. And when people are honest about their struggles, I think that tells you the most. So if you can say, what's the time when you worried about something you couldn't control? And then what did you do about that? For people to be honest. And if you have somebody that says, no, I don't struggle with any of those things, I'd take that as the biggest red flag that they either aren't self-aware or they're not going to be honest with other people about what their struggles actually are. Uh, this one that I'm focused on, they don't fear time alone. You live on a boat with your husband off the keys. I mean, I would become the modern day Natalie Wood. My wife would have tossed me over during a cocktail party if she and I, no offense to Robert Wagner or Natalie Wood. What's it like to live on a boat with another person? So it's, it's an adventure, but it's not probably as adventurous as you might imagine. Like we're not aimlessly bobbing around in the ocean for months at a time without seeing other human beings. Truth be told, because we need high-speed internet and electricity, and I do love all of the modern comforts of the everyday world like hot water, we're usually tied to a dock. So it's pretty easy to get out of the, out of the boat and go see people, and we have cars and things like that. So uh, it's more like a floating apartment than maybe a, a boat that uh, you would envision is setting sail for the high seas or something like that. <laughs> It's like living in the Cotswolds, but in Key West. I got it. Uh, Correct. <laughs> let's talk about the 13 things mentally strong parents do that raise mentally strong children. This is another book of yours. 13 things mentally strong parents don't do. Be patient with me. They don't condone a victim mentality. They don't parent out of guilt. They don't make their child the center of the universe. They don't allow fear to dictate their choices. This is good advice for parents without children. Uh, they don't give their child power over them. Oh, we're coming back to that one. They don't expect perfection. They don't let their child avoid responsibility. Number eight, they don't shield their child from pain. Number nine, they don't feel responsible for their child's emotions. Number 10, they don't prevent their child from making mistakes. 11, they don't confuse discipline with punishment. 12, they don't take shortcuts to avoid discomfort. Number 13, they don't lose sight of their values. Let's talk about number five for a moment. They don't give their child power over them. I am, uh, I'm told I'm blessed, I am, with three young boys. I say that as a joke because they kick my ass every day of the week. My wife and I are convinced that every night when we go to bed, they scurry up to the attic and they plan how to destroy our marriage. And in most days, they're so close to winning except for they haven't heard of the coffee hour at 4 a.m. where my wife and I repair it every morning and we realize how demonic those three sons are, 8, 10, and 12. Uh, let's talk about number five, they don't give their child power over them. So I think what we saw in the, you know, the 50s, the 60s, is that parents were like, 100% in charge. Kids should be seen and not heard, and parents were very authoritarian. And then the pendulum swung in the other direction. And we started seeing parents where they were asking their kids, like, where should we go to dinner tonight? Or what should we eat? Or do you think we should move? And I was seeing a lot of parents come into my therapy office who were giving their kids way too much power over their own behavior, where they would say, my kid doesn't want to do that, so we aren't going to go camping next weekend, even though we, the rest of the family would like to. And for parents, I think they really thought this is great. We're letting our kids have a vote. We're giving them uh, more power in the house. But what they didn't realize is, is you're 
eight-year-old really doesn't want to have an equal vote. Kids know that they don't have the skills, the tools, the leadership, responsibilities to be in charge. And they'll act like they do, and they'll try to convince you that they should be able to make their own decisions, but they get anxious when that happens. They really want somebody to say, no, this is what's good for you, and I'm going to enforce the rule. And when we do that, then kids know that there's a structure and there's a hierarchy. And while it's great to give them a choice, do you want water or you want ice water? Give them a choice that you can handle. Two choices is good. You don't want to give them a whole menu of let's pick out what, what we're all going to eat for dinner tonight. Like I had one family who was eating peanut butter and jelly almost every day because that's what the kids wanted. And the parents didn't want it, but they would go along with it because the kids were voting. So I think it's so important to make sure that we're establishing a hierarchy, that we're giving kids appropriate power, but we're not giving them power over how we behave or what's best for the family. Damn straight. My home's not a democracy. Peanut butter and jelly for dinner. My, they wouldn't right. dare. They wouldn't try. Uh, I'm looking at this list because literally you just could have published the list with no book and it would have sold well because the list is quite extraordinary for parents. Uh, let's talk about this. Number 12, they don't take shortcuts to avoid discomfort. That's just good advice for anyone. Talk about it in the context of parenting. You know, there's those moments when we say things like, uh, no, I'm not going to let you do that. And then your child throws a tantrum and you're really quick to be like, all right, fine, I'll give in this time. Oh, that's never and happened in my teach... family. That's that's absurd. Of course not, right? No. Right? And you know, I was a foster parent for years, so I know how difficult this can be because in those moments when you're stressed out, you don't have time to really walk them through the whole discipline process and you just, you just want them to stop screaming and you'll do anything to do it. But then we're training them that, yeah, it's okay for us to, to give you the candy because you were crying or it's okay for us to give in because it's easier right now rather than sticking with it. And it's something that we all do occasionally, but to just be aware of it, that when we give in those little things that we're really training our kids to be like, all right, when something's feels like it's intolerable or you're in a rush, you don't have to follow through and do the hard thing. We really want to teach kids, no, there are no shortcuts that are going to be healthy if you don't go through the hard work that you need to in the end. You don't want to cheat code for life. You want them to do the hard work so that they can persevere and persist in the end. Amy, I frequently invite uh, child psychiatrists on, parenting experts of our, gosh, I don't know, 300 episodes. We've probably had a dozen guests that have been on about family relationships, conflict, and parenting. Because I know, as a parent, what happens in my home impacts directly what happens with my team. The Scott Miller they get as a leader is a direct outcome of what is going on in our home. It's ridiculous to think otherwise. As a result of these two successful books, you also wrote a book called 13 Things Strong Kids Do. Not 13 Things Strong Kids Don't Do. It's very confusing, this not do and do thing, but I'm with you. 13 Things Strong Kids Do. Tonight, my oldest son, who is 12, almost 13, is going to get this book, and he's going to, not by vote, by decree from dad, read it. He's a strong reader, so he'll love it. Uh, send us off, for those of us who are parents, uncles, aunts, grandparents, neighbors, foster parents. What are some of the most immediately replicable things that strong kids do? So this one is really about if we teach kids to do these things now, hopefully they won't grow up to do those other things. So it's of talking about how do you persist when things are tough? How do you deal with sad feelings so you don't end up feeling sorry for yourself? How do you do the hard things when you just aren't in the mood to do them? So when I wrote this, it was really 
born out of that need. So many parents had said, oh, I now I need to give something to my kids. I've read the book myself and I know what to do to help them, but I want them to have this material too. So I wrote the kids book in hopes that kids would then have something. So it's not just mom or dad telling them, hey, don't do this or try this instead. But now they have some skills and tools to manage their emotions, to deal with their negative thoughts and to say, all right, I don't want to do this thing, but here's how I'm going to push myself to do it anyway. So it's filled with exercises and tips and tricks that are kid friendly. Amy, as we end behind you in your expansive bookcase located on your floating home, floating apartment, I notice you have a workbook and I can't help but want to talk about that. Tell me about the workbook that aligns with the 13 things mentally strong people don't do. Yeah, so a solid nine years after the original book came out, I finally came out with the 13 things mentally strong people don't do work. Slacker. Right? And so this one is really about just those exercises. Like, all right, it's one thing if I, in my original book, say, don't feel sorry for yourself practice some other strategies instead. But in the workbook, I just dove deeper into here are the exercises, here's some quizzes to figure out if you do this thing, why it's a problem at certain times, what to do instead. And so every chapter is filled with strategies straight from my therapy office that can help people figure out their own mental strength building plan. I wanted people to have a toolbox. Just like in your house, you might have a toolbox where you use the hammer and the screwdriver sometimes and you rarely use another tool. And this, I really wanted people to figure out what tools work for you, which ones do you want to use the most in your house, and here are the strategies that you can use to put those into practice right now. This is a nuanced question. I'm guessing it's not because you wanted to buy a Porsche. Why did you come out with a workbook? Was it was it your publisher wanted you to? There was demand from your, your clients and your patients and your your, your website demand, well, why did you choose to develop a product? I'm always intrigued to know how people uh, design their derivative products from their books. Uh, I guess two things. So the first one is I, I've been overwhelmed with people asking, can you coach me? Can you teach me? I started an online course, but people wanted more. And so the more people keep asking for more, I was like, I'll give you more. Let's figure this out. And so that's sort of how I developed like the next book in the series was always from what questions people were asking for the most. And then people were always asking, can we have a workbook? Uh, what other things can I do to build mental strength? So it seemed like the next logical thing to give to people is, all right, I'll give you this and then you can practice it at home. But also since I wrote the first book, it's been over nine years. So the world has changed. When I wrote that book, only 50% of people had smartphones. TikTok hadn't been invented and COVID had, was not a thing. So the mental strength strategies haven't changed in nine years, but the world has changed. So it's kind of my way of giving an updated version of, all right, now how do we deal with these new things that we've encountered in life? And how do you stay mentally strong despite the increased challenges that we're all facing? Uh, I love one of these, I'm gonna end this on this, is number 10, they don't give up after the first failure. I'm guessing all of your books weren't out of the gate wild successes, I'm guessing your first publisher wasn't your only publisher. Perhaps it was. If it was, don't tell us. But tell me what's next for you. I'm guessing there's some projects that you've tried that didn't work out exactly as you hoped. What's next on your horizon? Yeah, as an, as an author who never intended to become an author, it's definitely been a trial and error over the years. But I have another book coming out in December, which will be The 13 Things Mentally Strong Couples Don't Do. Oh, my gosh. We're so having you back on. Oh, Maybe awesome. we should Thank have you. our first simultaneous husband-wife host experience. What if we could get my wife on camera? Never. 
but I'm sure we'll be reading that book. Hey, if you want to come back on, we'd love to have you back on for the launch of your book. Oh, that would be amazing. Thank you. Amy, thank you from your um, bobbing apartment on the sea. 13 things mentally strong people don't do. The same with parents, the opposite with children. Uh, look for Thatcher Miller to be beginning reading this book this evening. Amy Morin, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.